0: It was very clear to me on day zero of Boom that I did not have what it takes to do this. I'd have to go get what it takes to do it.
1: Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader... Blake Scholl. He's the CEO of Boom Supersonic, and he'll talk about the passion that changed his life and how supersonic aviation could finally make sustainable flights a reality. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lacina from the World Economic Forum,
0: and this is Meet the Leader. Capabilities are very changeable. Knowledge is changeable, but passions are not.
1: Imagine flying from Seattle to Tokyo in and half hours, crossing the Pacific in less time than it takes to cross the Atlantic today. That is possible with supersonic flight, flights that are two times faster than any airline provides today. Blake Scholl's company, Boom Supersonic, is working on just that kind of marvel with tech that connect us to work or loved ones more easily, more economically, and thanks to sustainable aviation fuel, more sustainably. Blake talked to me at the annual meeting in Davos about the opportunity that supersonic flight can provide. He also talked to me about his unique path to aviation CEO, with roles in software engineering and ad tech, but with a singular passion for aviation technology and aviation economics. Immersing himself in the sector taught him that knowledge and skills are adaptable and changeable, and the surprising ways that they can support our passions, whatever they might be. He'll talk about all that. But first, he'll get us started with the last super fast flight experience you might know, the Concorde, and how Boom Supersonic can take that
0: further. So, Concorde was an absolute technical marvel, technically really far ahead of its time, but it was born out of the Cold War era drive to build something to show national prestige, not built with a sustainable economic model and not built with a sustainable environmental model. So a $20,000 ticket was what it was on Concorde. For the vast majority of people, it's like a bucket list item. It's not transportation. And so fast forward to today, it's been more than half a century since Concorde was designed with drafting paper and slide rules and wind tunnels and no computers. Today, we have carbon fiber composites. We have digitally optimized design. We have sustainable aviation fuel. We can build a new generation supersonic airplane that is three quarters less expensive to operate than Concorde was. And what that means is tens of millions of people will be able to benefit from supersonic travel aboard Overture. And ultimately, we want to make supersonic uh, more affordable than economy so that everybody who flies can benefit from speed
2: what is maybe the opportunity with supersonic travel that maybe people don't realize or they're not thinking enough about?
0: I think it helps to look back at what happened when we went from the propeller age into the jet age. And so that was in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And that was the last time we really had a mainstream speed up in flight. And you might think, oh, faster flights, that means less time on airplanes. But actually, as a civilization, we spent several times more time on airplanes because there were so many more possibilities in our world. Like Hawaii was not a tourist destination before the speed of the jet. In the 1960s, you think of the ethos of like Walt Disney World, where it was about uh, exposing people to other cultures in many ways because there was no capability for international travel for everyday people. And as we speed up travel, what we're gonna see is that happens again. We will choose to connect across continents when we might otherwise stay closer to home. I think this is one of these technologies, I think any deeply great technology has its most powerful benefits as sort of second order effects, meaning, oh, flights got shorter, but that's the first order. And the second order is, what did we do with that? And you know things like Hawaii becoming a tourist destination or Nike getting started thanks to the ability to build a global supply chain, or even like the Beatles being able to take the first world tour. I don't think anyone would ever have leapt from a jet engine to music becomes global. I think the most exciting things about supersonic will be second order effects that we're not smart enough to predict or imagine, but what happens when this increased Connectivity, increased accessibility comes out for millions of people and eventually billions of people. What do we do with it? What do we create? What experiences do we have? What happens when our kids grow up and uh, not just having read about other cultures in textbooks or in YouTube videos, but having broken bread on every continent with multiple cultures? What does that do for the future? I'm very very excited and very motivated to make that a reality. And your planes also only use sustainable aviation fuel, correct? That's right, yeah, so it turns out we don't have to choose faster or sustainable. We can actually have both at the same time. And ultimately, I think every long-haul airplane is going to be designed around sustainable aviation fuel. But today, that's not the case. And Overture is the first airliner designed from the ground up to run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel on a net zero carbon basis. And so this is not just a capability we're putting in the airplane. It's something we're asking our customers to actually live into an operation. So United, for example, which was the first airline to order Overture, publicly committed to operate them on a net zero basis on sustainable aviation fuel. And this is this is coming in 2029, not in 2050. So we can have flights that are faster and we could have them and we can have net zero aviation 20 years ahead of Paris. And for those who aren't familiar, can you define sustainable aviation fuel? Sustainable aviation fuel is basically synthetic jet fuel that is chemically very similar to what we would pump out of the ground but is is produced in sustainable ways and there there are lots of lots of ways to do it people often think of the the older forms that are biofuels which have some real trade-offs they compete with crops for uh, access to agricultural resources. So there are a lot of issues with biofuels, but there's latest generation synthetic sustainable aviation fuel. It's actually CO2 based. And that is really quite powerful because it starts with CO2 in the atmosphere and basically using green electricity converts that to high density liquid fuels. We don't compete with crops. Uh, We can be 100% net zero if we do this the right way. We're building on a definitionally renewable resource. If we run out of atmospheric carbon, I guess we've solved the problem. With with Boom, um, what are your plans to to reach net zero? What are your commitments? We've committed to net zero by 2025. And it's it's one of these things that starts... Easier when when the scale is smaller. So, you know, for example, we're breaking ground actually next week on uh, the Super Factory in Greensboro, North Carolina. We're going to build Overture. Well, it's going to be lead certified. It's going to be renewable energy from day one. And we ha- we have an advantage as a new entrant of uh, uh, on day zero the scale is small and we get to build entirely new infrastructure from scratch. But it gets it gets more challenging over time, especially as we start to think about scope three emissions. As we're building, you know, we're building a supersonic airplane and what fuel our customers use is going to really matter, and that's that's why our commitment to sustainable aviation fuel and our the way we we also ask our customers to join us in that commitment is is critical to, to getting to, to net zero. We believe we can get there like 25 years ahead of uh, ahead of Paris. The Overture it it has a, a, only will carry 65 passengers. Who's the typical customer for Overture? So Overture is designed to be very profitable for airlines at the same fares that are charged in business class today. So the the initial audience is primarily people who'd fly business class internationally. Uh, It turns out that while that's only about 20% of passengers, for international airlines, it's more than half the revenue and about 80% of the profit dollars. So this is on version one, uh, already targeting the economically most significant part of air travel. And we're taking everything we learn from the all business class supersonic airliner, and we'll be using that to to innovate towards Overture 2, Overture 3, where we'll be able to do premium economy and eventually uh, economy supersonic Flight.
2: And so, with all of this too, um, we've got uh, sustainable aviation fuel. We've got the, just the idea of supersonic travel. Um, what is needed to you know to, to scale this even more widely? Uh,
0: we need to invest in the infrastructure for making sustainable aviation fuel. That's one of the biggest challenges facing the entire industry today. I think there is a, a, a broad recognition that that SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, is the way to decarbonize long-haul travel. And and we're able to build it in small scale, but today supply and demand are totally out of whack. Uh, it's actually, in many cases, inexpensive to produce, but the market prices are very high because we simply don't have enough. And so we need to, it needs significant capital investment in the supply chain for creating these fuels so that we can have plenty. But there's lots of reason to be optimistic about that. And in, in fact, uh, we put out a report last year on sustainable aviation fuel comparing the trajectory needed for its scaling to what actually happened. Happen with wind and solar, and if we can remember back a few decades, you know, what what was everyone saying about wind and solar? Won't scale, too expensive, uneconomic, unreliable. Um, and now, in many places, wind and solar are the most economic sources of energy available. So, sustainable aviation fuel follows much the same trajectory. There's a lot of good reason to believe it can, if we take the right actions, it will allow us to have plenty plenty of fuel at at great prices. But it needs it needs the right incentives, just the way we incentivize solar and wind in the early days and it needs all of us to take a take a longer view yeah. so we can look at what's you know the, the price of the pump for SAF right now and yeah. you know freak out but if we remember the way technologies develop and if we look very closely at the fundamental unit economics then there's a lot of reason to be bullish and there's a lot of reason to invest I want to talk a little bit
2: about your background so you dropped out of high school as, as, a, as a young uh, a young man um, in part because you said that high school had nothing left to teach you and I think that's a really really interesting thing. Um, How can that idea, that approach, help anybody? That when it doesn't serve you anymore, that you move to something else.
0: I think people underestimate what they can learn and what they can teach themselves mm-hmm. if they are um, motivated and focused. I was very fortunate as a as a kid. My parents sent me to some really awesome summer camps. Like I, I hated my like normal run of the mill midwestern U.S. school experience, but I would go to these summer camps where I'd like learn to program or I'd learn uh, you know how digital circuits worked, and, uh, and like that stood in my mind is like this is what it really means to learn. This is exciting. I'm Around people who feel like my peers, and so uh, Carnegie Mellon had this like really visionary program where you could apply as a, a junior in high school, write an essay on why you know you're kind of done with high school, and then they would throw you in as a freshman if they if they you know, bought your essay. And I I feel incredibly fortunate to have stumbled across that opportunity and been able to take advantage of it. And it's uh, it's a lesson that I feel like plays forward in my life. Like I don't have the resume to build supersonic airplanes. I'm a software engineer by training. I'm like the ad tech guy from like Amazon and Groupon. But I spent a year kind of just teaching myself the fundamentals of airplane design and airplane economics. And it, it, it turns out, Like, I can learn that. And I I think a lot of people have a very self-limiting mindset that is normal in, in, in our culture of, oh, you go to school, and that's where you pick your field, and then you become an expert in something, and then your expertise just gets more and more and more narrow. And that's certainly a model that can work. But my... My experience is that skills and capabilities are very changeable. Knowledge is changeable, but passions are not. And it's much more powerful to follow your passions and let your knowledge and skills follow where your passion takes you.
2: You, you had mentioned also uh, you know, Groupon and uh, Amazon. Let's talk about that. One of your first experiences at a startup was was a coupon company, really. You know, You know, what does that teach you? What did that experience teach you about entrepreneurship?
0: Work on the most ambitious thing that you can think of that motivates you uh, is, is my, my biggest lesson. And to unpack that a little bit, uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur, no matter what I'm doing, I like work at my personal red line. I'm giving whatever I'm doing, everything I've got, and then a little bit. And when I was working on my, my first company, which was, was a mobile e-commerce company, it was literally a barcode scanning game. Like if we like order all the businesses on the planet by like most impactful to least impactful, like I might be setting a new low. Yeah. And I would get up in the morning. I think this is really hard. I'm working really hard and I don't really care about what it is we're we're creating here, and so when we had an opportunity to sell the company, I took it because it just wasn't worth it. And so on company number two, uh, which became Boom, I wanted to work on the most motivating thing, the most impactful thing that that was not impossible. Because I never wanted to get up in the morning and think, why am I doing it? And you know, at Boom, uh, we've had we've had some high highs, we've had some low lows, and you know, we're 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 started, but we're certainly not finished. I'm sure there're going to be many more challenges along the way, and it's that deep belief in mission that keeps me going, no matter what the challenge is.
2: You mentioned you worked at Amazon, and you were a software engineer there. What did you learn from Jeff Bezos's leadership uh, and the way that that company was organized?
0: Amazon, for me, was like a first love that was really good. And uh, I didn't know how good I had it until until after I left and experienced other corporate cultures and realized what a well-run company Amazon is. I learned a ton of things there. Like I got to have a multi-hundred million dollar PL when I was 24. And it was pretty insane they'd let me do that because I like, didn't really know what I was doing. But one of the things that, that really stood out in their culture versus other cultures I've seen is a, a intense focus on long-term decision making with short-term excellence. And so the way companies react to end-of-quarter pressures I think is very telling for corporate culture. And you know Amazon would always make the long-term calculus and be willing to have short-term cash flows be lumpy in in service of long-term achievement of goals. And you know and I watched, you know, other companies panic when a quarter is soft, and do things that ultimately make prop up the current quarter but undermine the long-term potential. One of the most important things to get right in a corporate culture is how to focus literally every employee on making long-term decisions that are best for the entire organization and its goals while still having accountability for short-term excellence. In,
2: you know, entrepreneurship, there's plenty of plenty of ups and downs, right? It's natural to sort of have these feelings where you you hit a wall and you get through it, you know, but there's this moment where you're not sure how. Can you tell me a little bit about a moment like that for you and
0: how you got through it? I have so many moments like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, the, the, the worst... I'll be a little vulnerable. <laughs> the, the, there are business crises, and and business crises can be bad. The worst crises are personal. And when when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror and think like, am I up to the challenge? The to, to share a, a story of one when when Boom was a baby company that was still in my basement, like literally. I think we had eight or ten employees. I was I was basically the only investor in the company, and I I kind of. Put a huge fraction of my life savings into this. I sort of gone all in, and it was it was the point of if I if I didn't find a way to raise money, like I'd bankrupt the family or go out of business or both. Okay. And a potential investor came in and basically said, "I you know I want to uh, I want to recap your company, and I think I'm a better CEO than you are. So you should you should basically hand the company over to me, and I'll raise a bunch of money, and you know I'll I'll run this thing that you created." And it was it was a real like gut wrenching struggle for me because like, I was like, "What if he's right?" And I ended up calling one of my, my closest mentors and friends. I was like, what, I, what should I do here? Like, I, I deeply want the business to work, but also you, also this is like my passion. Yeah. And, and he said, look, what would you do if you sold it? And I, I was like, I have no idea. I'd like want to take the money and restart the same thing. And, and, I, and then I sort of, the realization I had was there is no way a priori to say, can I do it or not? Can't, know. Can, the only way to know what I can do is to just go all in and don't worry about the whether I'm going to succeed, worry about how to succeed. And if it, if it works, then fantastic. And if it doesn't work, then I found my limit and, uh, and I know I gave it my all that that crisis and. Uh, really a crisis of confidence, of self-confidence, was one of the most challenging. But again, that that mission and kind of wanting to find my own limits is what, it, together with a really fantastic friend, yeah. is what got me through.
2: I think a lot of people have probably had those same crisis of confidence. Um, what was it like for you, though? Like, What, is, what did it feel like?
0: It was horrible. It was <laughs> really horrible. I, I, people don't talk about this. Yeah. I, I, I suspect that it's actually relatively common, but We're supposed to look as founders like we always got it all together and we're super confident and, and, you know, but it's the, like, challenges are big. And sometimes, you know, it was very clear to me on day zero of boom that I did not have what it takes to do this. I'd have to go get what it takes to do it. I'd have to reinvent myself. And the question is, you know, would I be able to do that successfully? And so those, those moments where it's like, okay, I'm clearly encountering a challenge of the sort, I'm not walking in with the... Pre-existing experience or knowledge how to solve like those are th- those are hard and you know the underlying best lesson I've gotten from that is to not be focused on what I already know how to do but have underlying build underlying confidence in my ability to learn and uh, create new skills. Uh, is there a book you recommend? So many. One of my one of my all-time favorite business books is The Innovator's Dilemma and it is widely cited. People talk about disruptive innovation. This is the book that coined the term. But for anybody who thinks they know what that means but has not actually read the book, I would highly recommend it, uh, both for entrepreneurs as well as leaders of established companies. It explains in a way the... The physics of of market evolution of, in what cases do entrenched companies tend to succeed even when there's change and in which cases do do new entrants have a fundamental structural advantage in uh, in a period of change
2: With all the disruption, the poly crisis, the climate crisis, the energy crisis, um, what should leaders prioritize this year
0: when when interest rates are up, and markets are down, uh, there's a very natural tendency to focus in on the shorter term and nearer term. Uh, but I, th- I think history shows that some of the most important things, some of the most impactful things ultimately get created during downturns. And I think there's a almost like a secret opportunity during, during times of crisis, during times of downturn, to, to especially turn focus uh, to the long-term, to what's gonna matter 10, 20, 30 years from now, and how do we start today in building that? So I, I, would, uh, I, I, I would encourage leaders to be very future-minded, even if interest rates were telling us to be very short-term-minded.
1: That was Blake Scholl. Thanks so much to Blake and thanks so much to you for listening. A transcript of this episode and my colleagues' episodes, Radio Davos and the Book Club Podcast is available at wef.ch podcasts. If you liked this episode, check out episode 56 with Space Tech CEO Chris Kemp. He's a former NASA CTO focused on growing the space economy. He'll share what he's learned from a range of roles, including one where he built a shopping tool for Kroger. He also shares what running Astra has taught him about resilience and what a life launching rockets has taught him about failure. This episode of Meet the Leader was presented and produced by me, with Juan Toran as studio engineer, Jerry Johansson as editor, and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.